We are in a sermon series, The Wages of Sin and the Gift of God. You can find some sermon notes on page 11 of your service leaflet. We'll be in the passage of Philippians, which is found on page 923 of your pew Bible. The purpose of this sermon series is to help us to appreciate the disease, the severity of the disease, so we can appreciate the wonder of the cure. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it is that the more we are aware of the devastating impacts of a sickness, the more grateful we are for a cure. And that is the purpose of this sermon series. Before we get to the text, uh, I wanna make two introductory comments about this text. Uh, so Philippians chapter three, verse seven. Two introductory comments. First, I want us to note the tone of this letter, of this, of this passage. The tone is tender. Look at chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers, Sisters is also appropriate, whom I love and whom I long for, my crown, my joy. This is, this is not the, the, the passage we're going to see some very stark comparisons between one group and another. We should not hear this as a finger-wagging disciplinarian. We should hear this letter as a loving father warning his beloved children, stay away from this path, adhere to another. So first, the tone is tender. Second, the content is redundant. Look at verse 18. For many times I've told you about this, and now I tell you again with tears. I've heard it said, so he's going to tell the church things that they've already heard before. I've heard it said that the role of a teacher and therefore the role of a preacher is not so much, not always, and sometimes rarely to give new information. The role of a teacher or a preacher is to remind, uh, remind us of things that are we already know, yet we may have forgotten their importance. So this Morning, we're going to see four comparisons. We're going to see two paths and four distinctions between those two paths. These two groups, one is going to be a, a cautionary tale, avoid them. Another group is going to be a group that we should follow, follow them. I see four basic distinctions. You can see them in your sermon notes. They differ in their relationship to the cross. They differ in their occupation of their minds. These two groups differ in the gratification of their desire. And they finally differ in the result of their lives. And if you've been in church, you know what? You've probably heard all this before. And that's okay, because the job of the preacher and the job of the Apostle Paul is to remind the church of things that they already know, yet may have forgotten their importance. So let's begin. Two paths, avoid one, adhere to the other. The first distinction I see between these two groups is in their attitude towards the cross. Verse 18, there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And by, although it's not stated in the passage, by inference, there are some who are friends. Don't be an enemy of the cross, be a friend of the cross. Now, I want us to take a look at our, our service leaflet as a case study. I want us to think just through this one service leaf of the many ways we say that we relate to the cross. Let's begin with the prelude. The prelude is titled, In the Cross of Christ I Glory. The gospel hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. The rock is a reference to the cross. If you note in that hymn, we sing, Let the water and the blood from the wounded side which flowed. That is a clear reference to the cross. So we hide ourselves in the cross or hide ourselves in the rock. In our closing hymn, How Great Thou Art, the cross will be an occasion for praise. And then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, How Great Thou Art. So the cross, we'll see, is a, an occasion for praise. We 
praise God for the Christ. We glory in the cross. We hide ourselves in the cross. We praise God for the cross. And I just want to simply remind us of how, 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 I'm not even sure the word to use, how ridiculous, how ludicrous, how blasphemous, how silly that would have sounded to its original hearers. So uh, several quotations from contemporaries of Jesus as they talked about the cross. And here is how they referred to the cross. This from Seneca, who was a Roman philosopher, writing around the year 65 AD. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling in the shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds. That's not an image that often makes it into our children's storybook Bibles. The crows and vultures circling. Such a fate was the worst imaginable, that from Seneca. Josephus, a Jewish historian, described the cross as the most wretched of deaths. The supreme penalty, wrote Cicero, a Roman statesman. And this from Marcus Vero, a Roman scholar who, in the year 100 BC, said that why the very word, the cross, is harsh to the ears. It's a word that I don't even say. It is so scandalous, so awful, conjures up images of such brutality and grotesque suffering. It's not even a word that I say. And now, rolls off our tongue, we praise God, we glory and we hide in the cross. Really? What happened? Well, the author of our closing hymn, How Great Thou Art, tells us one of the many reasons why we thank God for the cross. So this from Stuart Hines, How Great Thou Art, the second verse. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. So the first distinction is between two groups and their relationship to the cross. Some are enemies of it, some disregard it, but some glory in it, some are friends of the cross because we believe that on the cross, Jesus endured what was described as the most wretched of deaths. He was unable to beat away the clamorous birds as he died. He paid the supreme penalty for you and me. So the first distinction between these two groups, there are some who are enemies of the cross. We should avoid. There are some who are friends. We are friends of the cross. The second comparison concerns the occupation of the mind. There are some whose minds are occupied with earthly things, verse 19. And there are some whose citizenship is in heaven and therefore their minds are set on heavenly things. Now, earthly and heavenly doesn't mean clouds and harps. Uh, heavenly is an umbrella term meaning things that are good, noble, true, worthy, trustworthy, these things. And earthly things are the opposite. Things that are not good but corrupt. Things that are not true but conjecture. Things that are not noble but ignoble. My Lenten devotion my, uh, has been in the area of meditation. It's a new practice for me, a new uh, discipline for me, and I've studied and I've discovered in two and a half weeks of trying to focus on this spiritual discipline of meditation, one important thing, and that is I'm awful at it. And I don't think many of us will ever realize how often our mind just dwells on junk until we actually try to do what this passage says, and that is set your minds on things that are above. Like in the, the discipline of fasting, one of the benefits of that is that you never know how much you eat 
until you just stop eating for a while. And the discipline of turning your minds towards heavenly things, one of the startling revelations is how much you and I just think, or speak for myself, how much I think about junk, and I bet the same is true for you. Uh, trivial thoughts, anxious thoughts, worthless thoughts. We can stand to learn from the psalmist in Psalm 119. It's a long psalm, but throughout that psalm, 18, 20, 25 times a psalmist says, I meditate, I dwell, I ponder, I ponder your wondrous works, I ponder your law. So my encouragement for you is to when you find your mind just dwelling on junk, think about Jesus, think about his word, think about his nature, think about his good works. So the second distinction is on the occupation of the mind. Some minds are set on earthly things and some minds are set on heavenly things. The third distinction between these two groups, one we are to avoid, one we are to follow. The third distinction concerns the gratification of desire. For some, their God is their belly. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. That from verse 19. Now, in biblical anthropology, the belly does not mean just food. The belly stands for all appetites, all desires. In other words, for some, their appetite is their master, whatever that appetite may be. But others wait. Verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we wait. We wait a savior, and by implication, we wait the satisfaction of all our desires. Two quick comments about this distinction. The first is that Christianity is not anti-human enjoyment. Christianity is for the satisfaction of all good human desires. I can't think of, maybe there's some crazy deviant desires that will come across our minds every once in a while, but in general, the desires of your heart are all desires that the Bible says these are good desires. The desire to be loved, the desire to be known, the desire to be significant, the desire to have security. All these, the Bible doesn't say no, 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 no. Almost every human desire, the Bible says good, and it also says wait. Wait for the consummation of desire. Take a look at our opening collect. A great prayer. We pray this. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So look with compassion on my heartfelt, my heartfelt desires. Reorder my disordered affections so that I may behold your glory in the face of Christ who lives and reigns. If God has made us for himself, then our desires will only be fully satisfied when we're fully with him. In other words, your desires will never be fully satisfied this side of eternity, period. Your desire for love, even in the happiest of marriages, will not be fully satisfied. Your desire for success, even the most successful of jobs, will not be fully satisfied this side of eternity. We wait. We wait for the satisfaction of all our desires. 
There are some who wait and there are some for whom their God is their belly, for whom appetite is everything. Frederick Nietzsche, Nietzsche, and if you, let me back up, appetite is everything. And if you take God out of the equation, that's all you're left with, appetite. Frederick Nietzsche, the uh, philosopher who did take God out of the equation, came to the same conclusion. He took God out of the equation and he concluded that with taking God out of the equation, you have to also take Christian morality out of the equation. If there's no God, no heaven, no hell, no Jesus, then all you're left with is appetite and the desire of the strong to pursue their appetite at the expense of the weak. It seems to me that we are in a experiment, a cultural experiment. We want to hold on to Christian morality, love your neighbor, respect the dignity of your fellow human being without the Christian faith that buttresses such moral principles. How long can that last? Well, we will see. So the third distinction is on the satisfaction of desires. Some, their God is their belly. Some wait for satisfaction. And these three differences lead to a different result. The result of those for whom, who disregard the cross, who occupy their minds with earthly things, who satisfy the desires, their end is shame. And this is the deadliness of sin. This is why sin is so awful and you and I should hate it. Is because sin takes you, human humanity, humanity which is made in the image of God, endowed with special dignity, uh, a little lower than the angels, and it eviscerates, it removes all the human excellencies and leaves us as simply objects of shame. And that is the devastating consequence of sin. But there is another destiny. The wage of sin is shame, but, verse 20, the gift of God is glory. So verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await our Savior, and he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. I want us to appreciate two things. I want us to appreciate the degree of transformation from lowliness. Your lowly body will be transformed. That word lowly means abased. You may look in the mirror and think, huh, I don't consider my body to be lowly or abased. I'm looking okay. Just wait. We began our Lenten season with these words. Remember that you are just dust. And one day, even the best looking of us is going to be thoroughly, completely abased, lowly, just the dust of the earth. From lowliness, and there's a big difference between a dead body and a living body, and there's even a big, bigger difference between a dead body and a glorified body. The gift of God is glorification. I want us to see the means by which our glorification will occur. The end of verse 20. 
How will he accomplish this? By the same power that enables him, Jesus, to subject all things to himself. What the passage is saying is that Jesus, who upholds the stars, the heavens, the cicadas, the birds, uh, the trees, the, the universe, the Milky Way, the same power that he uses to uphold all things, will one day be at work in you. And restore humanity, restore you to its proper and God-given place of dignity, honor, yes, glory. The wage of sin is shame, but the gift of God is glory. Let me conclude. The author Paul draws a distinction between two groups. He points to the dangers of one, to the goodness of others. Two roads diverge in the narrow woods. Some are on a path that is typified by a disregard of the cross, with an occupation of the mind on earthly things, by immediate gratification of desires, and the end of this path is shame. And there are others who are on a path that is typified by friendship to the cross. Our minds are occupied with heavenly things, our desires held in check until they will be fully fulfilled. And this is a path that ends not in shame, but in glory. And like a loving father, the apostle encouraged us, avoid one and adhere to the other. Well, how do we stand these two paths? Just two quick notes as we conclude. In addition to the grace of God, which keeps us on one path and helps us avoid another, I think we have two little hints of how we stay on one path and how we avoid another. Verse 17. The apostle says, join in imitating me. Christian faith and life in general is meant to be imitative. It is not a weakness to look to others of how to navigate this troublesome life. We have the Bible to guide us and we have the example of the saints who have gone before us. And each of us should have someone that we are looking to to navigate. Imitation. Secondly, and this is our, where our verse concludes, chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm or continuation. The first practical suggestion is imitation. The second is continuation. What is sobering about this group, the, those who are enemies of the cross, is those who are enemies of the cross aren't the pagans who have never heard about Christ. Those who are now enemies of the cross were once Christians. They are deserters. They are those who have known and have yet have turned away. In other words, they were on the path and they got off the path. This is a warning to stay on the path. Churchill said, if you're going through heck, fill in the blank, if you're going through heck, keep on going. We will all go through times when our faith seems less real, when our struggles seem uh, uh, significant. Keep going, uh, persevere. This, this letter is written to those who are maybe tempted to say something or do something that would remove them from the, the, the church, from the faith. And the word from the apostle is, stand firm, keep going, persevere. Or if you're going through heck, just keep on going. Two paths. One ends in shame. One ends in glory. Two tools to help keep us on the path. The imitation of those saints who have gone before us 
and some good old-fashioned perseverance. Please rise.